Amen. Well, it's good to see all of you today. It's good to be together. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that special surprise. It's a joy to be pastor here. Uh, it really is. Every month, not just October. So thank you. And I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. That's pretty close to the end of your New Testament if you're looking for that. While you're looking for that, I'll just remind you that uh, today we're picking up in verse 12. We're coming right out of what we studied last week. If you were here last week, then you know that we just got punched in the nose. Or maybe that was just me. It was just me. Last week, the Apostle Paul was confronting these Ephesian false teachers who somehow, through their study of the law, had so distorted it and twisted it through their myths and strange genealogies that they could study the law and come away feeling puffed up, feeling really good about themselves feeling really righteous. And so Paul wrote to these teachers and he said, don't you understand? The law is not for the righteous. It's for sinners. If, if your reading of the law has you coming away feeling like, man, I'm the man, then you're reading it wrong. The law exposes the fact that you are not the man. The law exposes the fact that you are a sinner. And it's actually, it's been given to restrain your wickedness and evil. And it was given to reveal that we need a Savior. That's what the law should do. It should knock you down on your knees. And so that's what happened last week. We were knocked down on our knees. And that is necessary because we won't hear the good news of today's text if we haven't heard that first. So I don't want to assume I'm going to recover some old ground. And I'm just going to start today by telling you that you are a sinner. You are a sinner. The Bible says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the guy next to you, the lady behind you, your pastor in front of you, but today I'm talking to you, you are a sinner. And sometimes as Christians, we can can be so light with that word, right? Well, I'm a sinner and you're a sinner and we're all sinners. And of course, that's true. And yet, how do we say that without coming through tears? Our culture is offended by it. And I think maybe they're closer to the truth than we are. Do we understand what it means to say that we have sinned? We fall short of the glory of God. R.C. Sproul has this helpful definition of sin. He tells us, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It's an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything. To the one who has given us life itself. God made you. God made you. There are no self-made men, no self-made women in this room. God knit you together in your mother's womb. Every gift that you have, God gave it to you. Every skill, God gave it to you. Your ability to learn, God gave it to you. Your winsomeness with words, He gave it to you. Your ability to draw breath into your lungs, He gave that to you. He put you in this country. He put you into your family. Everything that has shaped you and molded you and fashioned you into who you are from God, all from Him, gave you food to eat. Gave you taste buds to enjoy it. Causes the sun to rise on you each day. Gave you this this ability to feel the warmth of the sun on your skin and to delight in it. All of that, every good gift is from God. And yet every single one of us, every single day, rebel against him. In one way or another. In the things that we do that we shouldn't. In the things that we don't do that we should. In the thoughts that we think that would horrify us if anyone else ever heard them. The words that we say that tear people down. 
the things that we model and pass on to our children. We are perpetuating wicked sin into the world, whether we like it or not. We've passed it on to generations now. All of us, sinners. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And the Apostle Paul is looking at these Ephesian false teachers, and he's looking at us by extension, and he's saying, how could you come away from the law thinking, I am the man? You are not. You are not. If you want that message, go out into the world. Right? The false teachers in Ephesus, you know, they were a different breed, but in reality, they're no different than what we find in our world today. You go out there, and you're going to find a whole world where, where we operate in this system, where we look at ourselves and we say, I'm not yet who I want to be, but I'm definitely better than him. Right? I haven't yet arrived yet, but I'm growing and I'm better than her. And that's what these false teachers were doing. Just prideful, arrogant, puffed up. And Paul said, you need to be knocked down on your knees or you're never going to see grace. And it's when you come to the place where you can say, I am a sinner, that you are ready to marvel at this amazing verse. One of the most amazing verses in all of Scripture. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came to save sinners. And until you realize that that's who you are, that doesn't sound like good news. But it's actually the most amazing news you're ever going to hear. He came to save sinners. For Paul, this wasn't some abstract theology. Right? He, wasn't, he wasn't just trying to win a theological argument. And that's what we find in today's text. So he, he tells Timothy, and by extension, he's talking to these false teachers, he's talking to the church, and he's saying, the law brings us down to our knees. And then what he does is he says, and look at what it's done to me. In our text this morning, we find this beautiful, intimate testimony from the Apostle Paul, who says, this isn't just, this isn't just for you, this isn't just some theory, this is what God has done in my life. So let's lean in now, let's look to the text, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 12 to 17, and let's hear the Apostle Paul's testimony of what God has done in his life. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, active word to us today. After telling us that the law knocks us down to our knees, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost but I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's something intimate about a testimony. If you've ever sat in and listened to someone share their testimony, something intimate about it. When someone pulls back the curtain and says, this is who I was. Right? I'm not holding anything back. This is who I was. There's something powerful in a testimony when that person says, and look at what God did. When we hear a testimony, it, it reminds us that there is no one that's too far gone. No one too lost. No addiction too strong. No sin too great. 
our God came to save sinners. And He has the power to do so. And so Paul's causing us to lean in today. He's inviting us to listen to the story of what God has done in Paul's life. And so that's what we're going to do. Hear now Paul's testimony. The first thing he would have us see is who Paul was. So in verse 13 he writes, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. He goes on to say in verse 15 this remarkable statement. We're not really sure what to do with it. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, the Apostle Paul, of whom I am the foremost. What are we to make of a statement like that? What does he mean? Right? Maybe Is he just exaggerating? It wouldn't be wrong if he were. Like, he could use hyperbole to make a point. Uh, I do this. Sometimes I say, I am the worst free throw shooter in the world. But I know there's probably one or two other people in the world who are worse than me. Maybe Paul's just making a point. I am the foremost of sinners. And he's like, well, not really. But I want to get the point across. Perhaps that's what he's doing. Or perhaps he's talking about his position of prominence. Because everybody would have heard the story of how Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church, came to Christ. Maybe what he means is not that I'm the worst sinner, but he means that I'm the most well-known sinner. I'm the foremost. Look at what God has done. Everybody knows what God did in my life. Perhaps. And you can find commentaries where they'll argue this or that. Perhaps. These are faithful readings of the text. I just, I think they're wrong. I think Paul means what he says. I think Paul looks at his life and he says, I am the worst of sinners. I found this incredibly helpful quote. I'm going to read it to you and then I want to press this into it. I think it's so helpful. William Law, he says, we may justly, rightfully condemn ourselves as the greatest sinners we know because we know more of the folly of our own heart than we do of other people's. Isn't that true? So Paul could say, I am the worst of sinners. Levi could say, I am the worst of sinners. You know why? Because I only see some of your sin, and sometimes your outward sins. Every once in a while, I will see one of your sins, and I'll go, ooh, that's yucky. You should look at that sin. Like, I saw a little glimpse of that. Sometimes. And yet, I see all of my sin all the time. The outward sin, the things I do, the inward sin, the things I think. I see the gross motives behind the good stuff that I do. The gross thoughts I have about my... I see all of it. All of it. And I can justly say, I am the worst sinner that I know. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. He says, no, no, no. I know myself. I know who I was. I know what I've done. I know who I am. I'm the worst sinner that I know. One commentator says, Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anybody could be worse. And when we think that way, boy, it sure changes the way we interact with the world, doesn't it? It helps us to be the merciful. It helps us to be those who forgive. It helps us to have compassion. When we see ourselves rightly, the worst sinner I know. But let's consider Paul, because many of you know this story, but perhaps some of you don't. Let's consider Paul. Before he was converted, he went by the name of Saul. Saul of Tarsus. We learn about his life in the book of Acts. I want to highlight one story in particular that most of you have heard And yet I wonder how how many of us have actually stopped and considered what we read. Acts chapter 7, we see Saul of Tarsus and we meet this man named Stephen. Stephen was a really, really good guy. A sinner like all of us. But everything that we read about Stephen in the book of Acts is really wonderful. Here's a guy who is wise. Here's a guy who is brave. 
Here's a guy who is compassionate. In fact, they set him apart, the early church, to care for the widows in Jerusalem. So he is so wise and he's so compassionate and he's so bold that we, we're going to entrust him to care for these sweet women who, who need someone to care for them. So here's Stephen. He spends his day teaching, caring for widows. Salt of the earth guy. But the religious teachers in Jerusalem started to be intimidated by Stephen. First of all, they hated that he talked about Jesus. Second, they hated the prominence that he had in the city. And so eventually, to try and shut him down, they incited a, a riot. And they gathered a big mob, and they hurled a bunch of false accusations. And they grabbed sweet Timothy, and they pulled him out of the city. They brought him before the high priest. Very similar to what they did to Jesus, right? And in this mock trial, this fake justice, they brought him forward, and they, they told him to make his case. And at this point, Stephen could say what they want to hear, right? To save his life. Perhaps some of us would do that. But he didn't. He had this opportunity before these men, these men who want to kill him, and yet he wants them to know that Jesus is amazing. So he tells them, he opens the scriptures, and he shows them how the law and the prophets pointed forward to Jesus. He shows them how from the very beginning, God was preparing us to recognize his son. And then in this act of boldness and courage, he comes to the end of his sermon, and he looks out at this group of people who are ready to kill him, and he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, and yet you did not keep it. At which point, the crowd's pretty upset, as you can imagine. Pretty fired up, including... Saul of Tarsus. And Stephen, in one last act of, of boldness and courage, he, looks, he lifts up his eyes, he looks up to heaven, and he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this point, the crowd is so fired up that they, they throw away any idea of justice, right? any semblance of, of a trial. And they just grab him and they rip him out of the city, and they take him to what we believe was the rock of execution. This is the way that they did stonings. It was a rock that was about twice the height of a man. And what they would do is they would throw the person over the rock of execution in hopes that they would break their neck and, and incapacitate them. And then they would stone them. And yet when they threw Stephen over, they didn't break his neck because he stood back up to his feet. And they began to hurl stones at him and rocks at him with their teeth, gnarling at them. And, and it says, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And the mob continued to hurl jagged stones at Stephen until his body was an unrecognizable horror. And Saul of Tarsus stood and watched and approved. Watched their coats. And he wasn't horrified by this. In fact, it sounds as if he was inspired by this because then Saul devoted himself to seeking out the followers of Christ. Sought them out like vermin. Like an exterminator trying to get the rats out of his house. That was Saul's life. Persecuting the church. Persecuting Christ. That's who Saul was. How many nights did the, the post-conversion Paul, how many nights did he have vivid dreams and visions of Stephen and those like him who cried out with their last breath, forgive him. 
do not hold this sin against them. That's Paul. That's Paul. That's the one who writes, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I think he meant every word of that from the bottom of his heart. Paul knew that his testimony was the perfect example of the fact that Jesus Christ has the power to save even the worst sinners. That's where his testimony begins. But praise God, that's not where it stays. He goes on to declare what God did. What God did. Look at verse 14. He says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Commentator William Mount says, these two verses give us one of the clearest insights into Paul's heart. What drove the Apostle Paul, this missionary, this minister, who who never rested, seemingly, who went forward with courage and shared the gospel with people who hated him, people who threw stones at him? What motivated the Apostle Paul? Well, Paul carried with himself not only the victory of one justified, but also the constant awareness that he was a sinner saved by grace. And that's what we need to carry with ourselves as well. He says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, but wonder of all wonders, I received mercy and grace overflowed for me. That word he uses there, overflowed, is actually, this is the only time we find it in the New Testament, and we only ever find it once or twice in Greek literature outside of the Bible, and that later on. Which leads us to believe that the Apostle Paul actually made up this word. He would do that sometimes. Just kind of melded some words together because he didn't have a word to express what he wanted to express. And here he needed a word to communicate it. He says, I didn't just receive a teaspoon of grace, though that would have been enough. No, God gave me grace that, that overflowed the boundaries, that exceeded anything I could possibly deserve or imagine. God is not frugal with grace, He's not cheap. He doesn't hold back. Paul looked to the old rugged cross where Jesus Christ bled and died for his sin. And it exceeded his vocabulary. He had to make up a new word. So that's God's grace. It, It just pours over anything we could ever imagine. Paul wasn't just a sinner who rejected Christ. He was an opponent who hated Christ. And yet he received mercy. But I don't deserve this grace, you say. But you don't know what I've done, you say. But God would never love a person like me, you say. Paul would say, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's grace towards sinners does not make sense. It doesn't make sense. If the telling of your testimony leaves people saying, oh, that makes sense, you're telling it wrong. It doesn't make any sense. None of us deserves this. And when you look back on your life and you consider who you were and then you contemplate the cross and you see Jesus hanging naked in your place, bearing your sin and your curse and your punishment, if you can look at that and say, that makes sense. You haven't seen it. You should be dumbfounded by the grace of God. Robert Murray McShane has this great quote. He says, this, this is the reason why many good men have a barren ministry. They speak from clear head knowledge or from past experience 
but not from a present sight of the Lamb of God. Hence their words fall like a shower of snow, fair and beautiful, but cold and freezing. I think there are a lot of Christians speaking into our culture with words that are fair and beautiful, but cold and freezing. I've probably been one of them more often than I'd like to admit. Christians who exude an arrogance that live a life that seems to say, I deserve this. Look at me. Look, look at me. God, look at, God, God has got a real winner on his team. And Paul says, that's not, that's not it. That's not it. Humility. Who could ever deserve this? No one. Certainly not me. Certainly not you. Let the world hear that as we talk and as we sing. Oh, let that shape us. Now from here, Paul's testimony goes on to explain who he became. Right? So he began with who he was and then what God did. And now he moves into who Paul has become. Why did God pour out mercy on this blasphemer and persecutor? Well, he explains, I received mercy for this reason. What reason? That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul understood that he had become a a trophy of grace, a, a monument of mercy, a portrait of God's patience. The most zealous persecutor of Christ became the greatest missionary that our world has ever seen, and Paul understood that that transformation was going to be used by God to transform the world, to provide an illustration for people to look in and say, that's what God does with a life? Yes. R.C. Sproul says, God appears, people quake in terror. God forgives and heals, then God sends. From brokenness to mission is the human pattern. The problem is that we have lots of people who are trying to go into mission without having first being broken. And when they talk to the world, they sound tone deaf. The world says, who are you and what are you talking about? The world has plenty of people who think very highly of themselves and want to tell you how you can be like them. What the world needs to hear is from broken men and women who have seen the extent of their sin who say, look at what God can do. That was true for Paul. It's true for every Christian today. When you see your sin, you experience God's overflowing grace, you don't stay the same. You can't stay the same. The more frequently that you look to the cross where Jesus paid the price for your sin, the more you grow to hate all those sinful things that you did that put him there. That's the mark of a Christian. Not that they're perfect and sinless, because we are not perfect and sinless. Jesus is the only perfect and sinless one. But that they're growing. And in particular, that they're growing to hate that sin that they used to love. Growing to hate that anger. Growing to hate that selfishness that bubbles up. Growing to hate that pornography that we go back to. Growing to hate that resentment and unforgiveness that we hold on to. Growing to hate that self-righteousness that bubbles up in us all the time. That lust that animates us. That prayerlessness that dominates our lives. Growing to hate all of that faithlessness that we see in our lives. As a Christian, we see all those things in us and we say, Ah, God, take it. Get rid of it. Because our hearts cry out, It was my sin that held him there. Until it was accomplished. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. If you want power in your testimony, 
You want power in your testimony, right? Then grow. By the grace of God, with the help of His Spirit, roll out of bed each and every day and say, God, make me look more and more like Jesus. And let go of the sin that you've been holding on to and let go of those patterns and the mindsets and the grumbling and all of it and turn away and look to Christ and change from one degree of glory to the next. And when the world sees that, and they will see that, you give all the glory to God. If the world doesn't see any change in you from who you were before Christ, have you seen grace? I mean, the Bible is full of questions like that. If there's no change in you, how could that how can that be? How can you look to Christ on Sunday and then pick back up your sin from Monday to Saturday and walk around with it and feel comfortable with it? Paul tells us, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who will believe in Him for eternal life. People should see light shining in and through you. They should see change. Jesus said that. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's why we exist. That through us, as monuments of mercy, as transformed men and women, people would give glory to our Father who is in heaven. That's who Paul had become. And then finally, he moves to this this last piece in his testimony. What God deserves after marveling at the overflowing grace of God that he'd received, Paul breaks out into praise. Look at verse 17. Just interrupts this testimony. He says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? He's, just, he's writing out his testimony. Or he's got a scribe writing it for him. Either way, he's, he's, he's spouting off his testimony. Here's who I was, and here's what God did. And now who, here's who I've become. And then he just has this, this insertion that feels awkward. He just has to stop, and he just has to say, Wow! To the eternal king be praise and honor and glory. The king who made Paul. The king who Paul had sought to dethrone. The king who had every right to condemn Paul, but who instead gave himself for Paul so that Paul could be forgiven. Glory and honor, Paul says. Honor and glory to the immortal God who is and was and evermore will be. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God who will never die. Who never wanes in power. Who will never cease to be and who has made and redeemed us to share in His immortality. Honor and glory to the invisible God who cannot be seen by our sinful eyes and yet who has condescended and revealed Himself to us by His creation and the things that have been made. And then through His acts of redemption and the things that He has done. And then more clearly through His Word where He speaks and ultimately through the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, His Son. Honor and glory to the only God. There is none like Him. Who can compare? Nothing in all creation holds a candle to our infinite God. He has no rival, no equal. He alone is God, set apart, far beyond. Holy, holy, holy. Paul marvels at this God. And wonder of wonders, this God has set His affection on us. People like you and me and Paul. Send His Son to die for us. To die for Paul. The man who watched with glee while Stephen was horrifically murdered. Was sent to die for 
perverts, and hypocrites, and liars, and addicts, and homosexuals, and Pharisees, and fools, and gossips, and you, and me. John Newton is the man who wrote the song Amazing Grace. And when he was coming to the end of his life, he said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. If we could keep those two truths front and center in our hearts and minds, what would God do in this place? What would he do in these lives? What would our worship sound like? What would our evangelism be like? What would our zeal be like? Our reverence, our awe, our wonder. If we could keep these truths in mind, I am a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. What if we were animated by this verse that we read? This saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. He says, grab a hold of this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. If you believe that this morning, if you believe that you're a sinner saved by grace, then your driving ambition, your overarching ambition in life should be to see God save sinners in this city. And if that is your ambition, then you need to unsheath your testimony. I'm a nerd and I can picture sword analogies. It's like a sword. You've got to take it out. You need to learn how to wield this weapon. Listen, so many of us in this room make excuses about why we can't share the gospel, why we can't be used by God to tell people about this hope. And we say, well, I'm not a theologian. I can't walk people through systematic theology. And you're probably right at this point. And maybe you're saying, and I, I, I'm not a great student of the word. I can't prepare and, and preach a 40-minute sermon. And perhaps you're right. But let me tell you, there is nobody else in this room, no one, who is better equipped to share the story of what God has done in your life than you. Nobody. That's a, that's a unique sword, a unique weapon that God has entrusted to you to wage war with the evil one, to set captives free. And God would have us use it. God would have us use it. There's power in your testimony. Power in every one of our testimonies. There's no such thing as a boring testimony. It's always a miracle when God saves a person. There's power in it. Power to expose and undermine the pride and the arrogance that our culture is steeped in. And listen, I love our city. I want to reach this city. But this is a city that is steeped in pride and arrogance. It's true. There's power to display and magnify mercy. The mercy of God. His grace. His heart for the lost. I love this city. There's not a lot of grace in our culture right now. You make a mistake, prepare to be knocked down. Prepare to have your business overthrown. That is the world that we live in right now. There's not a lot of grace in this world. Let's tell them about the grace of Christ. There's power in your testimony to flip the script in a world where everyone is exhausted from trying to impress each other all the time. By God's grace, there is power in your testimony. So you need to wield it, and you need to wield it well. And so very quickly as we conclude, I want to just tell you how to wield your testimony. Drawing from principles that we learn in this text, three simple steps. I'll tell them all you at once. Are you ready? Step one. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Step two, celebrate Jesus as the hero because he is the hero in your story. Step three, overflow with praise. Three, is that simple? Tell the truth. Celebrate Jesus as the hero. Overflow with praise. That's how you get power in your testimony. First and foremost, you need to tell the truth. 
Listen, don't sugarcoat it. We're all really good at sugarcoating it out there. We don't need any more sugarcoating. Just tell them like it is. If you read any autobiography right now coming out from the world, it's always a story about how I was misunderstood. I was a star waiting to shine. People didn't recognize me. People didn't see me. I needed to overcome these obstacles. All this sugar. All this, not, that's not us, right? We wipe all that away and we tell the truth. I was a mess. I was not a star waiting to shine. Confess your sin. Expose all of the things that our culture tries to hide. You don't need to go into every gruesome detail. I'm not saying that. But you need to be brave enough to tell the truth about who you were. Because someone's going to identify with who you were. Someone who feels like they're too far gone. Were you a drug addict? A sex addict? A workaholic? A narcissist? Tell the truth. Were you a hypocrite? You grow up in the church, spend half your life pretending to be something that you weren't? Tell the truth. Were you angry, scared, lost? Did you feel like you were unlovable? Did you feel like you were irredeemable? Like there was no hope for a person like you? Tell the truth. Because somebody's in that same place. And woe to us if that person's sitting there listening, thinking there's no hope for a person like me, and you sugarcoat over that stuff and leave them feeling like, yeah, there's no hope for a person like me. Tell the truth. Don't withhold hope. And as you share your testimony, as you tell the truth, make sure it's abundantly clear that Jesus is the hero of this story. If your testimony brings glory to you, then you're telling it wrong. And maybe you've sat in on one of those testimonies. And, and it's a story about, ah, you know, I was, I was lost and I was broken and, and I pressed in. Friends, I overcame. Oh, I was surrounded by obstacles, but I, but I climbed over those obstacles. I dragged myself to church and I opened up my Bible and I prayed a prayer. And I walked forward, and then I changed, and then I grew, and I, and I. If your testimony is marked by and I, then you're missing it. If you read your Bible, and I is not the place where the story gets better. Where does the story get better? Where are those two words that that shine through as the gospel light springs forth? But God. Those, Those are the words that mark our testimony, right? I was lost. I was broken. I was a sinner. I was a rebel. But God had mercy on me. But God opened my eyes. But God brought this dead man to life. But God set my feet back on the path. But God changed me. But God grew me. But God is using me. But God has got a plan for me. But God is where our story turns. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. I couldn't be the hero. I needed a hero. I was trying to be the hero, but God sent his son to be the hero, to set us free. Jesus is the hero of our story. And if you can tell all of that without welling up and overflowing with praise and gratitude, then I would suggest you haven't yet seen what you need to see. You're like what Robert Murray McShane refers to as a, as, as a beautiful snowflake, right? Glistening and shining, but cold and lifeless. Paul couldn't tell his testimony without overflowing with praise and gratitude. He begins with thanksgiving. He says, I thank God. That's how he starts it. As he begins to think about it, he says, oh, I thank God for what he's done. And then he ends with this song of praise to God. That's not just the blueprint for a testimony. That's in the DNA. That's the very heart of it. When we see what God has done, how can we not praise him? You were lost, but now you're found. Dead, now you're alive. A rebel an enemy of God, but now you've been made a child of God, an heir with Christ. See that. Who are you? 
Who am I that the God of heaven would look on us and would pick us up out of the mud and clean us off and make us his own? What did, what did I ever do to earn his love? How can we ever repay him for what we've received? And yet here we are. Monuments of mercy. And when we see that amazing grace, it has to stir up in us gratitude and praise and adoration. And so friends, let's take a time. We're going to sing a song now. We're going to sing amazing grace. We're going to reflect on what God has done in our lives. And my prayer is that as we sing these words, these words that you've sung a hundred times before, that God would well up in us a reminder of who we were, that we would see afresh the, the amazing mystery, as we just sang, that his grace would come for us and that we would go and we would wield our testimony. We'd tell our kids and our neighbors and our city that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would Speak to us today in a way that only you can. Certainly a way that, that I cannot. Because um, I'm just a beggar who's been given bread. Um, that's who we are, all of us. Lord, we're not the hope of the world. We're not the hope of the city. We're not the hope in our family. We're, we're lost, broken people who have been picked up and saved. Help us to see that. Lord, help us to put to death all of the self-righteousness that so quickly grows up in us like a weed. Lord, I pray that you'd uproot it once again today. Lord, I pray that we would be people who are marked by humility. People who are marked by wonder. Lord, we should roll out of bed each day just in awe of the fact that you would use us. Why on earth would you use us? Why would you use Paul, a murderer, a terrorist, why would you use Levi? Why would you use anyone in this room? God, we, we don't understand. And yet, wow, here we are. Just reveling in grace. Set apart. We're going to be with you forever. God, I can't even fathom that. I, I grow tired of being with myself for five minutes. And yet you, the holy, holy, holy God, who cannot look upon unrighteousness, you have set a plan in place that we would be with you forever. What amazing love. Can't begin to wrap our minds around it. Lord, if we ever could, oh, it would change us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see afresh the love of God that has been displayed. The love of God that is ours in Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd stir our hearts. I confess, Father, that so often my heart is just stone cold. And Lord, I'm sure there are many people in the room who would say the same. That we look on this glory and, and we can... We can just feel so cold. We can't actually even see it without the help of your spirit. So God, I pray that you'd help us right now, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see a fresh grace for sinners. That your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see our sin and then to see mercy, to see the glory of Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that you'd help us. We need your help. God, we need your help. For the sake of your witness in this city, we need your help. For the sake of the witness in our homes, God, we need your help. Lord, as we roll out of bed each and every day, we have no strength to do this in and of ourselves. We need your help. God, I pray that you would bring us to the end of ourselves, that we would depend on you. And God, that we would overflow with gratitude and joy as we consider the way that you've overflowed with mercy and grace to us. And we ask this in faith 
God, you are uh, you're not a withholding God. And so we ask you with, with confidence, and we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Worship. Amen. Well, I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. I was just reflecting on, on uh, today. I, I, I'd love to leave you with a closing word. Uh, you've heard this analogy before, but the gospel is not, or the church is not a museum for perfect people. It's a hospital for sick people. You've heard us say that before, right? I would love for us just to keep this front and center in our minds that there's nobody in this room who has arrived. And uh, there's a world out there that is lost and broken and mindful of something that's not right. And, and for a lot of them, they have this idea that if I go with those church people, those Jesus people, I'm not going to fit in because those are the people who, who think they have it all together. I'd love to just make sure that anybody who comes to be with us would put that right to death. Um, that we're not the people who have it all together. We're the people who confess that we don't have it all together, but that Jesus has us. And uh, as I was preaching today, I confess, I just felt like the cloud. I read that McShane analogy, and I thought, that's me. I feel like this cold winter cloud, you know, all puffed up, but there's no life. There's no heat. Um, I, I just had a week where, honestly, just was marked by selfishness. Just a really selfish week. I was repenting this morning as I prepped, and I couldn't shake it. Even as I'm preaching, I'm just feeling like such a hypocrite, like I'm such a selfish guy. Um, and I thought, Lord, why? I know there's forgiveness in Christ. I've confessed this. I've repented that. I know I'm forgiven. And yet, why am I sitting in this? And I wonder if it wasn't just for this reason. God wanted me to preach it, feeling like a big old hypocrite. Um, feeling like someone who doesn't deserve grace, because that's the point. <laughs> that's who I am. That's who we all are. And I want to make sure that anyone who comes here, anyone who comes through these doors, whether they're carrying with them addiction, whether they're carrying with them a horrible relationship, whether they're coming in with sexual sin, whether they're coming in with financial sin, whether they've been written off by our culture, ostracized by their family, let's make sure that they always feel like there's a place for them at Jesus' table. Because that's who he's looking for, the humble and contrite. And so we're going to look to him. I'm going to pray for us as we go. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't ever shared your testimony with someone, you, you need to do that. You need to do that often, joyfully. On Thursday night, that's what we do, by the way, um, in case you didn't know. Uh, we have the men and the women break out. And in the room, we just hear from one another. We hear from a brother or a sister. And they say, here's who I was. Here's what God did. Here's who I am now. Here's what he deserves. Uh, that, we're doing that week after week after week because we want to cultivate that in this place. And so let me just pray for us as we go out into the world, and I pray that God's praise would flow off our lips and these testimonies would ring out in our workplaces, in our homes, and wherever God would place us. Let's pray. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he lift up the light of his countenance to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious unto you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace. You are dismissed.